kind of differently today because I want to talk a little about my relationship to the place that will be discussed. This is a place that has become almost a symbol of the demise of forests, with many a deforestation campaign using it within their imagery, and it's regularly used as an example of a place where things are going very wrong. When I was 18, my parents bought me what would turn out to be the most life-altering present I've ever received, a holiday to Borneo. This would be the second time I'd ever left Europe. At this point, I knew two things about Borneo, that there were orangutans and loads of rainforest. I remember the feeling stepping off the plane. It was the very first time I'd felt proper humidity. After all, my birthday's in December and we were visiting over Christmas, right in the middle of the monsoon season. We began our travels in earnest, with just two and a half weeks to see as much of the place as we could. The main attraction for us being the Sepalok Orangutan Rehabilitation Centre. We'd met a local guide, Ben, who would provide us with his incredible knowledge to ensure that we went to all of the best places and had the absolute best time possible. We set off for the Rehabilitation Centre, and on our three-plus-hour drive, I didn't see one patch of forest, just palm oil plantations. Despite being crazy about nature since I can remember... This was an issue I hadn't really heard much about, and neither had anyone else really at that point. This is now going back 13 years ago. This is also pre-food producers having to write palm oil on their ingredient lists, and way before the establishment of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. On asking our guide about where the forest was, he replied that we'd get to it in a few hours. My vision of Borneo was turning out to be totally wrong. We arrived at the rehabilitation centre, a small patch of jungle bordered by more palm oil plantations, to see orangutans who'd been rescued and re-released. As one of my ultimate favourite animals, I was in awe to see these incredible creatures close up and watch their agility as they manoeuvred through the trees with complete ease. Then a moment of drama. A male orangutan took a bit of a fancy to me, and following me along the boardwalk, then grabbing my bag, pulling my purse out and biting it, resulting in all of my bank cards being snapped in half, and Ben having to scare him off by whipping his belt on the ground next to him. This is something I believe my auntie may have actually caught on camera, and unfortunately never sent it into one of those home video shows where you win money if you've been featured. Although I'm not actually sure my embarrassment would have been worth the prize money at that point. After I'd recovered... We began to walk around the forest close by to the centre and spotted a mother orangutan with her baby high up in the trees. This moment changed me forever. I knew from that moment onwards I wanted to help them, and not just them, as many animals as I could. We continued our holiday, travelling miles past palm oil plantations to get to the places we were visiting, where we saw pygmy elephants crossing a river, birds and fish of every colour you can imagine, hairy-nosed otters, and the extremely weird yet charismatic proboscis monkey. And also, so much rainforest. 
However, I left Borneo with a heavy heart. All of these amazing, unique, bizarre, beautiful animals restricted to ever-declining pockets of forest. I did more research, discovering that there were so many more factors causing the decline of their ecosystems, and knew that I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life to doing whatever I could do to help these animals and any other animal that I could. Since then, I've always followed and supported conservation organisations in Borneo. I was in London to attend the Whitley Awards, a nature conservation charity who offer funding, profile and training to grassroots conservation leaders in the global south. I listened to the bio of one of the award winners who had founded a charity in Borneo, Yayasan Asri. This was an organisation like I'd never heard of before, whose work was both humanitarian and environmental, and whose impact was huge, and was so unique that I, having already worked with 350 conservation charities around the world in my short career, had never heard of anything similar. I'm absolutely not one for doom and gloom, so I consistently seek out and dissipate good news stories and prove that conservation does work. It just needs everyone's belief and support. My interview today does just that. And now that I've set the scene, I'm going to welcome Mahardika Putraperba to the Earth to Humans podcast, the research and programme consultant at Asri. Today on the Earth to Humans podcast, uh, we have Dika from the from Asri, which is a, a an amazing organisation that is based in Indonesia. I came across the organisation in 2016 when I was attending the Whitley Awards, uh, which is a, a grant giving award ceremony based in the UK, and it focuses solely on community conservation projects so these are conservation projects that really really bring in people people are the main focus of these projects and wildlife and the environment always benefit from them so I'm really really excited to talk to Dika today who is going to give us a little bit more information so Dika do you want to start by introducing yourself yes so hello I'm Dika I'm actually the former program director at ASRI but I just currently resigning from my positions. But because the fun that I have with the organizations, I'm continuing supporting the organizations even upon my departure. So I'm now actually working as their program and research consultant. That's wonderful that even though you're leaving, you want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> so the organization must be pretty great then. Yeah, because of the value of the organizations. And I see how the organizations have been very, you know, very impactful to the community uh, surrounds them. So I, yeah, I decided to continue supporting the organizations. Fantastic. So ASRI is actually a shortened version of the yes. full name of the organization. So yeah. can you... Tell us the full name and, and what that means. So the full name of the organizations is actually Alam Sehat Lestari. It means that nature, healthy, sustainability. So we believe that human health and the health of the environment are interconnected. And if once it's not healthy, so neither can be so we believe the interconnectedness. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. So with the project, when I was listening to it, so for listeners, the 
video that was produced for the Whitley Awards, which is actually narrated by Sir David Attenborough, will be shared on the show note of the podcast. It gives you some insight into what the organisation is and the area where it works. But the organisation itself, it is so unique and so innovative. And I've never, ever, ever come across another organisation that's doing anything similar even in the past five years since I've been aware of ASRI and the work that it does. Mm. So could you just go back to, I think the organisation was started in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. So can we go back to 2007 prior to that and actually discuss what the need was and why the organisation was started in the first place? I think before go to 2007, so... Before, even before that, for many years, our founder, you know, our organizations, we've been trying to telling people that their health and well-being are affected by the health and well-being of people that living in rainforests, the, the communities that half a world away. But it has only been with the pandemic that we recently experienced that most people are finally getting it. They say, yes, now I see what you mean. We really all we really are all interconnected, right? So we believe that it isn't just local human health and local rainforest health that are connected. Climate change, pandemic, biodiversity loss are all interconnected with our well-being. And uh, one of the connections that our founder saw was that the rainforest, she was living in a rainforest at the time, it was disappearing around her. So she can hear chainsaw all day, you know, the sound of the tree falling down all day. And she wanted to understand why these people were logging on the rainforest. And she found out that many people log because they needed to pay for healthcare. So for example, he met a man that need to cut 60 giant trees to pay for a family member healthcare. It's actually to pay for his wife C-sections for uh, labor. At the time, she was like, it's very in a desperate situation. And then when she go back to the United States, she start studying uh, medical and being a medical student. And then after she graduated from medical degree, she got a medical degree, she came back to Indonesia and then start going around the village and then talking with the community and then gain more insights about the root cause of the problem. She believes, and we believe that the rainforest communities are the experts and know the solution. So before we begin our program in Gunung Palung National Park in West Kalimantan, Indonesia. So we did many hours of what we call radical listening. So we, we listened to community. We asked them one question, actually. At the time, we asked them, what do you need in order to stop logging and live in harmony with the rainforest. So we asked them as an expert, and we also encourage them, you are all guardians of this precious rainforest. What would you all need as a thank you from the world community so that you could protect it? And at the time, they asking for two main things. The first one, they responded that they needed high quality, affordable healthcare. And then second, they asked for training in organic farming. What's very interesting was that their solution addressed the complex interconnectedness of the root cause of logging. So their solutions were in silos. They didn't see this as a medical issue, or this is as an economic issue, or this is a conservation problem. They saw all the issues as interconnected, human well-being dependent on ecosystem integrity and health and vice versa. 
So that's the, the initial work that we did. And then with the solutions that come from community, we implemented those solutions, but we also tied them with an agreement. So if we help you with the solution that you just mentioned, then you have to agree that you will protect the rainforest. So that's how our program come into places. So we built a clinic in 2007. We gave uh, medical healthcare to the communities nearby. And then we also uh, provide an incentive systems where they can pay with non-cash, they can pay with non-cash payment. And then, but we also monitor their village, whether they did what they said that they will protecting rainforest. So that's what we did. And then at, since 2007, it's been working quite up and down with community because it's not easy working with community, especially we have to build trust with them. But yeah, it's been working well up till now. I really enjoy the expression radical listening. It's something that when you look back historically on a lot of conservation programs, mm. it's actually something that's completely missed out is listening at all. And for a, a conservation program to be sustainable, you need buy-in from local people. They have to support the programme because otherwise the second everyone kind of leaves the project site, then everything's going to fall apart. So that radical listening is something that needs to be done in every single conservation project yeah. and, and environmental programme. And I think conservation is catching up with that, which is really encouraging but the fact that you guys in 2007 really really started with that it just goes to actually show how it's sustainable and how much support the the project has got within your community yeah and I agree with you I mean our founder always saying that it needs an open heart a really big heart to listen to people and it needs it needs respect humility truthful you know you have to admit what you don't know what you can't do, you know, but at the same time, you don't judge the community. And it's showing the respect to the community because we understanding that the communities are the experts. You know, we studied about rainforest in school, but actually when we talk about rainforest, they're living in a rainforest, you know, their whole life. So if we want to know more about rainforest, we should ask this community about it, you know, but they oftenly neglected by uh, either by the policy we're not going into that but you know either by the policy or or a lot of things so that's what we did we we listened to people and yeah it, it's difficult in the beginning because you know you ask them one questions and a lot of people were talking sometimes it can be tense and then there's a lot of conflict in, in, in the discussions as well but at the end of the day they can come into uh, one voices, it's a collective decisions. And then they say that they need, at the time they said they need high quality affordable healthcare and we need also training in organic farming. And then collectively around communities surrounded by the rainforest, they have the same idea. And that's why we developed that program. There's something else that you've said about the organisation that I just think is wonderful is that you asked, rather than going in and just telling people what to do, you've asked and you've gone, yeah, you've gone in with a really, really open mind, open heart, and just completely listened to what they've said, mm. which I just think is is fantastic. What I was kind of surprised by, so obviously when you think about the local people doing defore getting involved in deforestation and things like that, it's actually really, it's quite easy for somebody far away to almost demonise 
those people for doing something that is technically bad for the environment and it fits in the same criteria for me as people who kind of poach and things like that when you have a family member who's suffering or who is potentially not going to be educated or is in a bad situation with certain people there's the all these stories that you have from poachers and from loggers and things like that about the situation that they're in and if you look at the human element of that they're not doing it because they want to destroy the rainforest they're not doing it because they want to kill an elephant they're not doing it because they want to do those things it's often the only option that they have and actually in this situation you've got people who live in the rainforest their entire lives exist because of the rainforest and without that rainforest health they couldn't live there so they're suffering at the hands of the thing that they're doing it's not because they want to do it that's not in any way Mm -hmm. part of their motivation to go and cut down a tree so that must have been something that you heard from people is that that's not why they're doing it yeah yeah. they need to choose between short-term well-being and long-term well-being they know that if the rainforest is not exist then there will be no water temperature will keep rising you know there will be no food at all they understand the existence of the rainforest but sometimes it's a dilemma for them oh food on the table the health of my family or the forest there. It's a very dilemmatic situation and very complicated situation sometimes. Oh, I saw there's a lot of timber right there. There's a lot of trees that I can chop down to feed my family, to pay for healthcare for my family. But then I also understand if I cut down that forest, there will be no water because they understand this at the moment, you know, right now, when I talk to one community, what is the difference between 10 years ago and right now and they talked to me and they said oh like 10 years ago if the dry season approach we still have a water because there's still rainforest exists there but right now even before the dry seasons approach towards the end of the rainy season there will be no water for us to enjoy uh, there will be no water that will drain our rice fields so they understand the impact and the existence of the rainforest but sometimes they have to sacrifice their long-time well-being for their short-term well-being. We can come up with solutions, you know, and we don't really have to choose between human and forest. They can thrive together. So that's what we try to prove with our program. Yeah, I guess that's the kind of exact role, isn't it, of your organisation is to prove that you don't have to make that kind of short-term dilemma into a long-term issue you can actually just solve the issue then and there and then there is no long-term issue so health is maintained both in the short and the long term which is wonderful so something you kind of touched on before because you mentioned about healthcare and how that was a real motivator for this kind of deforestation for people to try and make some money to pay for the healthcare of their loved ones but you also mentioned that something that came up time and time again was that they wanted to be trained in organic farming, which that kind of surprised me when you said that, because I know that that was the healthcare was a big motivation for them. But for them to say that as well, that's really interesting. So what does that involve? Most of the loggers that working as illegal loggers, more than 50% of them, they're actually having a land to work with. But then in their ideas, even to work in your land, you still have to 
gave away some money. You know, you need to buy manure, you need to buy fertilizer, you know, in order to make your land productive. And all of those things are getting more expensive because they keep thinking about a chemical fertilizer because that's the one that makes your plants more productive, right, in the short term. So they understand that. So instead of working on their land because they thought it's expensive, they prefer to work as illegal loggers because you just chop down the trees, you sell the timber, and then you got the money. And then you can feed your family right away. But with working with the land, it's a process. It's not like one night process. You have to produce the seedlings first, or you have to produce the, the vegetable seedlings first, and then you need to plant them. You need to care for them. You need to nurture the plants before it can give you something for your, uh, to feed your family. So when they ask about organic farming training, is that they how can we reduce our dependency on chemical fertilizer because it's getting the price is getting expensive and expensive how can you teach us to plant vegetables on this barren land for example how can we grow rice in in, in this area for example you so organically and without having a needed to buy fertilizer how can we produce our own fertilizer so very interestingly in the beginning of our program in 2007, we did a like a baseline survey. We found around more than 1,300 illegal loggers, right? And then five years into our program in 2012, we did again a baseline survey and then we found out only 450 former loggers left. And then five years into 2017, only 150 loggers left. So there are 90% reductions just by doing organic farming training because most of them, they have their own land so that they can easily transition into becoming a farmer once they got this training and educations on how to make their land productive. But then there is, this is goes to another story actually, but then there are 150 what we call hardcore loggers because it's so difficult for them to transition away from being a loggers because they simply don't have enough education, they don't have land, they don't have other educations and they cannot do anything. So they come up to us, so what about us, you know, we wanted to stop logging, but we don't have any choices. So we came out with different program at the time in 2017. So how about we bought your chainsaw and then change it into funds to start new businesses, whatever businesses that you wanted to do, we can support that. And then we can do it together. So we bought their chainsaw, we give them a funds to start new businesses. So since 2017, we keep buying chainsaw from former loggers and then support them with the new business. And so far we bought 182 chainsaws. So yeah, and it will, the number will keep continue. And then if you put it in the perspective, because this chainsaw using to log a giant tree, right? A big tree in the forest. So if you put it in the perspective, we did a small interview with them. When you own this chainsaw, how many trees that you can log in one week? And they say it in average five to six. So if you use that number and put it into perspective, we already save a lot of trees in the forest. And then by saving a lot of these big trees, it means that we allow the forest to regrowth because the forest itself have the ability to regrowth, right? And then to make it like it was before, but it needed time. <laughs> 
that's an awesome initiative actually just removing those it almost removes temptation as well Mm -hmm. from those people so when you buy the chainsaw Mm -hmm. what's the next step for that person so they've sold you their chainsaw and then what happens next with their work and the support that you offer them there are two types the formal logos that we bought the chainsaw from so the first one we call it so the first one we call it active loggers and then the second one we call it passive loggers so from the passive loggers they usually already have different jobs or work they're working in different livelihood but they still have chainsaw that oftenly rented to other loggers who wants to do logging in the forest so we bought chainsaw from these persons as well And then for the active one, it means that they don't have any jobs other than logging. So their main job is logging. We bought chainsaw from them with more. So the prices for the passive one is 3 million, but the price for the the active one is 4 million. And then we added more funds, a total of 10 million to start new businesses. We usually ask them, what do you want to do? And then some of them said, oh, I want to do paddle shop. I want to open a small shop. I want to open barber. I want to open, oh, I want to start chicken farm, fish farm. And a lot of, there are actually 20 types of businesses that we support at the moment. And then how can they manage their income? Something like that. So very simple financial uh, management. And then we bought, we bought what they needed for, you know, to start their businesses together because we don't give them money to avoid they bought a new chainsaw. And then we tied them with an agreement. And this agreement is actually witnessed by the local authorities as well. So it's a commitment. If they are found to do logging again inside of the rainforest, then they can be arrested by the local authority and they don't want that. Right. So it's more like this program is actually try to educate people as well as try to influence people and then try to make them understand that they're doing best bit by gave up their chainsaw to us. And then we will try our best as well to accompany them so that they can be successful in their new businesses and then can transition away from being a logger. So obviously you've mentioned the local people who may be working as an individual or working in pairs or working in small groups, but obviously there is the issue of larger scale illegal logging Mm. and then also unsustainable commercial logging. So what is the impact that stopping these smaller loggers how much impact is that having overall because on the global scale indonesia is obviously losing a lot of forest and the amount that those forests have shrunk in the past 50 to 100 years is just absolutely heartbreaking as somebody who's been to borneo and seen those beautiful beautiful forests it's it is heartbreaking to think of that but obviously really encouraging to know that there are these initiatives out there that are working to stop that. So yeah, what are, what are your kind of impact measures with regards to how much forest is being saved and what impact you're having compared with those larger, bigger scale threats? Yeah, of course, when we talk about illegal uh, logging in Indonesia, it's more like an iceberg. You can only see the tip, but you, can, you cannot see the bottom. And usually those people with money, with special interested, those People who have money usually paid for these small scale 
loggers, these local community loggers, to go to the forest and then cut down the forest and then bring it back and sell it the timber to them. By buying the chainsaw or getting the chainsaw from this small-scale logger community, it means that we cut the opportunity for those large group of loggers to asking them to go to the forest. We try to cut the demand, although we cannot say that we cut them entirely. Because it's very tricky when you talk about loggers in Indonesia because they're very smart. Sometimes they work in the middle of the night and you don't even know. And then when you think about the size of the forest compared to how many people who actually guards the forest from the government, it's almost impossible to save the rainforest, right? That's why we try to engage with community. So we try to give a lot of incentive to the community so that they can think collectively as a community what they need to do to help us tackle this issue. For example, I mentioned earlier that we have incentive systems, right? So incentive system actually we give a discount for healthcare for community who help us protect the rainforest. Helping protect rainforest by means that they there are no loggers in that community, there are no land poachers in that community or land grabbers. They open a new land inside the rainforest. There is no sawmill, like small timber processing company. And then we work with the community. So if the community are really looking after all of this, then they will get 70% discount. And then we color their communities are green. So whenever they come to our clinics or our medical center to access for healthcare, oh, where, where are you from, for example? And then they show their identity. Oh, your village is categorized as green, then you get 70% discount. And then we constantly monitor all of this. There are 39 communities that are having a direct border with the national park. And then we work with the community. So uh, if their if their uh, communities are categorized as red, it means that it's really bad, that there's still uh, loggers there, there's still a sawmill there, there's still access to the forest there, and then there are still people who are working for a timber company, you know, illegal timber company over there. So it means that collectively they will be thinking of that because they get the benefit as a community, not as a person. So if one person in the community doing loggers, they will go to that person and then try to warn him, you know, you need to stop because because of you, we will not get this discount from this medical center. So we work with the community. Of course, it's a very complex issue and we just try our best on how to reduce the impact of logging. But actually, when the community stops logging, it means that we allow the forest to grow again. It's really great to hear that the community holds each other accountable as well. So they're on the lookout for people that might be slipping back into their old habits or things like that. And actually saying to them, if you do this, then we're going to lose our health care. And they, maybe they might have a sick family member or something and they would be really mad with this person <laughs> for doing it. So it's almost like you don't have to police it. The role to do that is left within the local community. So yeah, that's obviously a really positive thing. So with regards to the regrowth of the forests that you've mentioned, I know you guys have got a conservation reserve that you've seen regrow. Like what has the impact that you've seen around the forest been in the past 14 years that you've 
been an organization what have you seen as positive impact of the work that you've done so we also have a conservation department in our program because we want to show the interconnectedness between health and conservations so in conservations one of our program is restorations so i did forget to mention when we begin our program in gunung palung national park unfortunately 40% of the area of the rainforest has been degraded by fire because it's open and simply because there is no natural regeneration takes place there. So it needed human intervention for the forest to regrowth, right? So we did uh, what we call reforestations project and we started this project in 2009 and then so far we have successfully restored around 176 hectares. It's quite small compared to other organizations that have been working in the restorations project. But what very interesting about our restorations project is that we're not just thinking about planting trees, but we also incorporate the thought of biodiversity. Biodiversity in terms of species and biodiversity in terms of genetics. So we try to incorporate this into our restorations project because we believe that if we want to restore the forest later, we're not just planting the trees and then allow the trees to grow, but eventually it will create ecosystems. It will create habitat for wildlife animal to stay on it, right? So since 2009, we work in a three different restorations area. There's one area that we called a corridor, wildlife corridor, because of the forest area are very fragmented. So we need to connect it between one area of the forest to another area of the forest so that the wildlife animal, especially orangutan, because the national park that we're working with is actually one of the last habitat of a wild orangutan. And orangutan needs quite larger area for them to, to have an activity. So we built a corridor and, uh, since 2009 and in 2012. And this corridor is actually function. So through our camera traps, we saw orangutan build nests and then orangutan passing by the, the wildlife corridor from one forest to another forest. And then we also have different conservation program. We also have the chainsaw buyback program that I just mentioned to you. And then we also help widows, uh, the most vulnerable in the community to raise goats. So we gave them one female goats and then we rent them male goats so that they can mate and then produce baby goats. So the second baby goats will then be giving back to Asri for us to giving it to new widows. So we also have that program. And we also have that farming, organic farming training program in our program as well. And then we work with the community. So we also have the representative of the communities that are being educated. And then they have meeting every month to discuss about our program. So they kind of like our key person in the community. So it's the our go-to person in the community to ask about how community is doing, is there any suggestions or is there any improvement that we need to make in our program? So all of the input from the community. Is this related to, you mentioned earlier about non-cash payments yes. for healthcare. So yes. is part of that so is that how they can pay for their health care if, yes. if even the 70% discount isn't enough for 
for them to afford. Yeah, so because in the beginning, they asked for affordable healthcare, right? And then affordable by means that even if you don't have money, you can still access it. And that's what we provide to the community. So if they don't have money, they still have these options where they can pay with seedlings, they can pay with seeds, they can pay with manure, they can pay, some of them even pay with eggshells. <laughs> and then they can, even if they don't have all of this, they can still work at Asri. At Asri Clinic, they can help with cleaning, a lot of work that they can help with to pay for their healthcare. And just to backtrack slightly about Gunung Palung, that's the first area where you started. Mm. This is a really special place and you obviously mentioned orangutan, but that area is incredibly biodiverse and a real pocket of just unique and special wildlife. So obviously you guys are from around there, which is why that project was started. But what else is in that area that is so important to protect? The size of the it's one of the park that has all complete type of ecosystems from the beach to mangrove to tropical lowland to peat swamp to highland. It's very rare to see national park in Indonesia that has all of the, this type of ecosystem in one place. And that why, that's why. And it's high biodiversity as well. So there's a lot of critical endangered tree species found there, endangered tree species found there, that uh, if you go deep into the forest, there are still a lot of trees that are really giant trees. So you can barely hug the trees. And then you need five to seven people to circling around the trees, holding hands, that very old trees. If you're thinking about those trees must have been thousand, thousand years old. And then... It's been the tree that has been seen by our ancestor and their ancestor. So by protecting this, it means that we, we kind of are leaving legacy to our next generations. If we saw that tree, our generations must see that tree. And then this type of thinking that we also try to bring to community when we educate them, when we talk to them. I was having a very interesting conversations with one communities when we asked them to plant those native endangered tree species in their garden. I asked them, have you seen this tree lately in this neighborhood? And then they said, oh, no, no. Yeah, thank you for reminding me because when I grew up, I saw this tree a lot. And then now I rarely see it. And I want my children to see it and my grandchildren to see it. And then if I plant now, even my grand-grandchildren will keep seeing it growth. They're very excited to start, oh yeah, can I have some, some of the seedlings that you have? Can I plant them in, in, in my garden? It's very unique forest as well. If you... Like in Indonesia, especially Kalimantan or Borneo, it's, it's actually kind of like source of the old forest, uh, mega biodiversity. And then there's a lot of not just like tree species, but also wild animal species. You know, like that monkey with long nose, we call it Bekantan. Yeah. <laughs> they also... I think we call it proboscis. Proboscis, proboscis monkey. monkey. Yeah, proboscis monkey. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So proboscis monkey also have their own habitat in pit swamp. If the pit swamp area is gone, then the habitat is gone. So we have to protect them. When I was there, I went to go and see those monkeys and I've never seen a stranger animal yeah. in my entire life. They don't actually look real. And if anyone's listening and wants to know what one is, definitely look it up and share it around because it'll brighten up everyone's everyone's day at this same at this point in time that's for sure but something that I want to share with you so when I was in Borneo uh, 
so I was I was in Kota Kinabalu and then we went oh. to we went to Sepalok but mm. then there was a river near there and we yeah. did a boat cruise down it mm. and one of the most special things I've ever seen in my entire life of being a wildlife biologist mm. was when our guide stopped and he, you could hear this rustling in the forest we were sat there and he wouldn't tell us what it was and then suddenly a group of pygmy elephants started crossing the river in front of us and it oh it gives me goosebumps even thinking about it now like this area is so special and so wonderful and there's so many unique and beautiful animals there mm. that one of the many reasons I admired this program so much was that it is saving this absolutely unique gem of an area that it's like nowhere else on the planet and it does really really need support and help to survive what's happening around it at the moment so it's a wonderful place and and it's really really good to hear that there is this program and there's a lot of NGOs that work in the area with various different species with various different ecosystems and then obviously you guys working with the local communities. We have several uh, campaign tree planting campaign as well and then the newest one is that carbon offset have you heard about it so it's like you change your carbon footprint into planting trees so you try to measure how many carbon that you how many carbon footprint that you leave every month and then try to calculate it into how much money you can donate or how many trees you need to plant it and then we work with a lot of organizations that are focusing on that on that platform and then well, yeah, we try to plant trees as much as possible because we also in this together to tackle the climate change issue that we're facing right now so I was actually going to ask you about fundraising uh, we are open for donations so if you want uh, to donate for our program really you can just uh, go to our website and then look for donations and then yeah donate <laughs> So great. So if people, yeah. yeah so if people do want to donate after listening to mm-hmm. information about this incredible organization then they can head on over to the website and mm. even get rid of their carbon footprint by supporting you guys to plant some trees is that right yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then donation by means it's not all about money. It's also even by sharing our social media to your colleagues or even spread the information about organizations or even read some of the story from the rainforest. Or maybe you can also come when we allowing to travel again, then you can also visit our organizations and then learn and then do some exchange knowledge because we receive a lot of exchange students before the pandemic. So there's a lot of People from around the world come to our organizations and then stay for a month or for two months doing voluntary work. Or if you are professional, you can do some exchange knowledge. It's not just like one side giving. It's like both ways. We also can learn from you. You can learn from us, you know, and then you can spread the, the word about the organization. So there's a lot of way to donate. It's not just all about money. Great. So obviously, I know you operate within healthcare quite a lot so those work exchange people are they often nurses doctors healthcare professionals do you get volunteers who come over that work in those fields and kind of go and help at the clinic or is it more people that want to do organic Mm -hmm. farming or is it everything yeah, most of our volunteers or our guests is coming from different backgrounds. Like you uh, mentioned earlier, medical professional, nurses, dentists. 
and then help a professional. Uh, there's a lot of fat as well because we have our goats programs and then try to educate our staff as well with zoonosis. There's a lot of people coming from different backgrounds. Education to help our education team to build curriculum to build a way to talk more in a simple way and educate in an interesting way to children so that we can engage them because they are really to be the next generation that will be thinking about this stuff as well so they need to be educated since earlier so yeah there's a lot of people from various type of backgrounds as well my mum's a nurse and I obviously love wildlife in Borneo so there may be a post-covid trip from uh, my family (laughs) you never know (laughs) so obviously we've discussed what you're doing in Gunung Palung but is there I know that you guys want to replicate the project and try and have an even bigger impact so is that something that you guys are looking to do at the moment is it already happened is it been affected by the current global situation and Mm. how what's what's in the future for your organization yeah so at the moment we can only uh, really take this model to scale across the whole tropics and work to help save all the remaining tropical rainforests if we can prove that matching rainforest community solutions to global resources works as well and in other contexts as well so in 2018 we are replicating uh, our model in a second site in Bukit Baka Bukit Raya National Park BBBR National Party I just mentioned earlier. And our sister organizations are called Health in Harmony, based in the US. They replicate our model in Madagascar and in Brazil. So we try also, hopefully next year, to expand our program to Papua. How are those programs working out? Are they as successful? Are you, I can imagine there's different issues between different communities and and that kind of thing but obviously it's had such a massive impact in the Mm. community there Mm -hmm. is it as successful in other areas of the world it's actually working really well but what we've learned from scaling the impact of our program is that even in a totally different cultural context like Madagascar and Brazil what's fascinating is that everywhere we have done radical listening with the community we hear similar themes although the details are very specific but we hear similar themes about the needed for healthcare and the needed for organic farming training so this is even in Madagascar even in Brazil there's always a link between human health and the health of the environment and how we can protect the environment by giving an educations or training to improve their alternative livelihood. So have there been any surprising answers that have come up from other parts of the world other than healthcare and organic farming? Has there been any other answers that you thought, oh, OK, how do we how do we kind of conquer that? Or is it quite a similar? Yeah, education everywhere. It's education, education because most of the rainforest community, if their children wants to have an education, they have to send them to the city. And usually when they go to the city, they kind of like change, it, it changes their perspective. It can be good or it can be bad. But what they want us to do is that if we can also support education so that their children don't have to leave home, don't have to leave them, so that this they, they their children can stay true to their identity and to their value as a community, rainforest community, that would be really good. And then we try to communicate this with a local NGO that's focused on educations that working in the same landscape or in the same region. So, yeah. 
That's great. So as an expansion of the project, that's including education would be the next mm-hmm. step. Next step. I think that's about all I've got to ask you, apart from it, if you've got anything else that you want to share about the program or about your role? Yeah, at all? Um, yeah I actually have an encouragement to our listener today. <laughs> I have one question for all of them. Try to think what is your part in creating a healthier future for us all. Because I believe strongly that every single one of us has a role to play and I know together we can do it. Oh, a message of hope at last. <laughs> it's just wonderful speaking with somebody who's so optimistic as I am as well. And it can be easy to get bogged down with all of the grandeur of the global issues that we have to combat with the environment and with conservation and with human health and with everything but speaking with you today has been so wonderful and it's filled me with so much hope so I hope the listeners are are feeling the same thing and if you want to support in any of the ways that Dika has mentioned head on over to the show notes and we'll put all of the links to the website up and you can go on there and support one of the programs or all of the programs or plant some trees or share do whatever you can do <laughs> to support this amazing organization so thank you so much Dika I've loved talking to you yeah. today thank you so much as well for giving us this platform and opportunity to talk about our wonderful organization so thank you <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Earth to Humans podcast. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective, and today's episode was produced by Hannah Mulvaney. Our senior producer is Serena Simons. If you liked what you heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on all things Earth to Humans. For show notes of today's episode, visit wildlandsinc.org ETH226. Our intro music was edited by Wildlands Collective member Jason Milligan. And music for today's episode comes from Arrington de Dioniso and Blue Dot Sessions. Mm-hmm.